Hello and welcome to Laid Back Lush. I'm Michael. I'm Gabe. And today we're going to be talking about sparkling wines. Before we get into that, though, we do have a couple of updates for you. Follow us on at Laid Back Lush on Twitter and on Instagram, if you would. That is where we do most of our updates. But we are going to be changing a little bit of the format of how we are recording this podcast and releasing it to you. So we were discussing this earlier today. We actually polled you guys because we do want your input on whether or not you wanted shorter form episodes, you know, 25 to to 30 minutes, as opposed to our longer form episodes, which are typically 50 minutes to an hour. It was mostly like split straight down the middle. Literally. (laughs) I I did a poll on my private Instagram as well, and uh, it was a (laughs) 5-4 split. Yeah. So. And it was 50-50 on the main Instagram account. Yeah. Yeah, so we we understand a lot of you might have a commute that you're having to do, but we also were thinking, okay, so if we're going to do that, then how can we do this in a way that is still presenting good value to you as far as the conversations are concerned, still just having some real authentic conversations that we enjoy having because as soon as we stop enjoying this, we, we're not doing it. Yeah, exactly. And what we kind of figured that we would do is we would have some more of our technical episodes that are kind of telling you the what of what we're talking about. You know, the actual noun, the the wines themselves, the products themselves, how they're created. We're going to have those as kind of our shorter episodes so that you're able to get a good reference, a good context to our longer episodes, which will go into their history how they're mainly used or served, what sort of things you can pair with them, interesting historical facts and the like, which which is really our bread and butter. Yeah. We want you to have be equipped with knowledge. We want to be able to discuss this with you, but we also want to be able to just share what's exciting about it, mm-hmm. how it can be actually applied in our longer format stuff. Yeah. And we want to respect your time as well. Absolutely. You know, we understand people have jobs and we want you to be able to actually retain some of the stuff. We, yeah. <laughs> we know that uh, in our, a couple of our first episodes, they were pretty dense. Yeah. Which we we're fine with, but, you know, we figured it's probably be a good idea. Probably. So today we are talking about sparkling wines. We are actually drinking a sparkling wine. We debated on it, but it ended up being late enough in the day to where we weren't <laughs> going to be engaging in the day drinking that we thought we were going to. Yeah. It took a bit longer. We ended up talking about a bunch of different stuff, mm-hmm. including the idea of a uh, Spectre's HR policy. Um, so, you know, that'll just be always, the next episode. Yeah. Always about the business <laughs> yeah. between the two of us. Yeah. So yeah, today we have a cava, which I think is one of the most underrated uh, types of sparkling wine that there is. I agree. Um, Yeah, from Spain, so always going to be criminally underpriced. Mm -hmm. And I was very lucky that Gabe sprang for the Segura Viudas. I've had one of their types, but this one I have not had. It's very ornate bottle. Yeah, their Brut Reserve. Brut Reserve, yeah. So it's done in the traditional method, and we're going to tell you what that means. So you'll be able to hopefully navigate some of these bottles by the end of the episode. Done in a dry style, so this is a dry sparkling. But we're gonna we're gonna open this thing up. It's it's such a cool looking bottle too. It has like this bottom that is all metal, almost looks like acid wash work. Mm -hmm. There's an emblem with a little knight on it. Um, But the first thing that we wanted to mention is how to open a champagne bottle or a sparkling bottle. We have seen people do it incorrectly, and I don't know if you've heard horror stories, but I've heard several horror stories. There are some statistics out there, actually, about deaths per year. Yeah. What did you say? It was more than spider bites? Yeah. 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 Per year. Yeah. So uh, the proper way 
to open a bottle of sparkling wine is to twist the cage that is on the cork. And that's going to be, is it five or six turns? Uh, uh, standard. I believe it's five. So then you're going to put your thumb on top of the cork and you're going to hold that cork really tight. Yeah, you do not remove the cage. No, do not remove the cage. Um, as soon as that cage is loosened, you have the potential for that cork to pop out. Yeah, uh, so you're keeping your thumb firmly planted on top. And then using the bottle as leverage, you twist from the bottle mm-hmm. with your hand firmly wrapped around the entire cork. You do that. And what I like to do is I like to keep a lot of pressure on that and then kind of start cocking it to one side so that instead of getting the you instead get a it's a very long cord (laughs) (laughs) i believe in you that was good i used to be able to do it completely silently the less noise that you make the more professional you are it is appetizing for you to get the whole pop noise in some cases but but you also typically lose wine with that. That's my yeah. biggest. Well, aside from the danger. So, okay, fun fact for champagne and traditional method, sparkling wines in particular, these wines within that bottle, you have more pressure than what is in most of your uh, semi truck tires. So these corks are under immense pressure, and that's why there are injuries related to opening these bottles. So, yes, it's fun for New Year's to pop a bottle and, you know, spill a little bit but please be careful that that's our main concern is you know please 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 be careful don't hurt yourself doing this yeah there is one additional method which we recommend none of you do (laughs) very specifically laid back lush endorses a no tolerance policy towards this practice at any social gathering or business place called sabering and I, i forget who did it first but a lot of sommeliers a lot of bartenders See, this is like a rite of passage type deal. Yeah. Where they get a specially made sword that has a very blunt edge. It's, it's, it has to be a blunt edge. It can't really even it be won't a sharp work one. Otherwise, yeah. Um, and they hold the bottle at an angle and they ride the saber along the length of the bottle so that it catches at the lip and bursts the top off. Yeah. Including the glass. You know, you want to believe that all the glass gets blown away by the pressure of the bottle where that glass goes is everywhere mm-hmm. so that is our least recommend or our non-recommended method yeah for opening a bottle of sparkling mm-hmm. we are going to be talking about all these different methods and the first method is the most popular one or at least the most popular among the highest priced bottles yes so basically you have a, a couple of different main things you have kava you have prosecco you have uh, champagne Prosecco is the one that's going to be selling more than pretty much anything else, and that is not the traditional method. The traditional method is going to be what you see with your champagne. So anytime that you see something that says champagne, it's going to be using the traditional method, and you're going to see that on the bottle as well, Yeah, typically. You might see the term uh, method traditionnel as well. That's just the French spelling of traditional method. To start out, it begins its journey like any other wine any other clear wine that's being created so you have your initial fermentation so let's let's get into that so how does how does this bottle how does the method traditional start out so basically you're going to take grapes that are high in acid and low in sugar you want to ensure that 
the grapes going into this first fermentation, which is going to be just a standard fermentation. So we did an episode on standard winemaking practices a while back. You can go back and listen to that if you're not familiar with them, or you can you know look them up online. But I would highly recommend listening to our wonderful voices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so this initial fermentation doesn't really... It varies from producer to producer. Sometimes it's an oak. Sometimes it's a stainless steel. Uh, it, you basically just want a base wine. Yeah. And the wine needs to be low in alcohol because the next step after you, depending on where you're at in the world, you in champagne, the houses, unless you're making single vineyard champagnes or certain other producers, you have blending that happens before it goes into the bottle fermentation. Which is basically where you take all of these still wines, blend them together in a certain way, and after that, you put it into the bottle for a second fermentation. This is not, to my knowledge, practiced everywhere that does this method of production, but uh, it is champagne is very well known for it. Gotcha. And after that, though, so once you do this blending stage, you do a second fermentation in the bottle or if you're not doing blending you just take whatever wine was a still wine and then you put it into the bottle now that blending practice if i'm not mistaken was it's one of the largest parts of what makes specifically champagne what it is Mm -hmm. and and we'll go more into this in our our next episodes which will be focused on more the history of how these things develop but it was some of the first times that you actually saw blending happening if i'm not mistaken yeah it uh Again, we'll get into the episode kind of in summary, though. It was a way not so much in recent years because, you know, champagne is warming up just like the rest of the world. But um, champagne has really intense vintage variation. So the blending is to produce a consistent style of wine from year to year because you Mm -hmm. don't always know what you're going to get in champagne from your grapes. That's just kind of the nature of the region. So second fermentation, how are we getting bubbles? So what you do is you take your wine that's going to be going into the bottle and you are going to add sugar and yeast to that in the bottle and that sugar and yeast mixture is called the liqueur de tirage and it starts a second fermentation inside of the bottle so that is why you want a low alcohol base wine you typically don't want to go much above 11 percent because you're going to be adding another two to three percent from this second fermentation in the bottle normally depending on how much sugar and yeast that ratio is going to be in the bottle. Uh, So yeah, you you put it in the bottle and it actually ferments in the bottle. It it doesn't do it in a vat. So in the process, that's, that's releasing alcohol, but it's also releasing carbon dioxide. Yes. Yeah. So if you remember again from the wine production episode, the outcomes of fermentation is alcohol, carbon dioxide, and heat. So uh, heat is not really a concern in this second fermentation. The bottle is far too small. The heat will dissipate immediately. It's really not an issue. So all you're really left with is that carbon dioxide and also the spent yeast, which is very important to traditional method wines, particularly aged ones. If you've ever been lucky enough to try a very high quality champagne or cava or um, even new world wines that will do this method that have been aged for long enough, after a while, these spent yeast cells, because once this fermentation happens, typically you don't do the next step, which is disgorging and riddling. You leave it to rest for a while. Why would they do that? Like, So what sort of things is this adding? As the yeast, the spent yeast, the dead yeast, are sitting in the bottle, 
they're going to start to dissolve into the solution. They're going to start breaking down. Mm. And so, so the enzymes from the yeast are actually starting to break down. Mm-hmm. And the yeast themselves. Just Interesting. Yeah. If you are a baker or you are accustomed to the way yeast smell and what they go into, that's kind of the same notes flavor notes that you'll yeah. start getting in that wine so, so like and i've even experienced that like with the gavis gaviard a lot of your uh blanc de blancs in french that means the the white of whites so your chardonnay based champagnes they're going to have that toasty note it's going to taste like either biscuit if you've ever had veuve clicquot there's there's a, a nice subtle biscuit beneath the tangerine flavor yeah so that's where that's coming from and this will be affected. There, There is a cutoff point. I want to say it's around eight years is when you kind of reach the maximum amount of this flavor profile that you're going to get out of those yeast cells. Does it start degrading after that point? It doesn't or does start, it just hold? It, it just holds. It, it's, it's more you're just focusing on, am I going to get anything else out of these yeast? And once those yeasts break down to a certain point, there there isn't anything left for them to give to the wine. Yeah, there's just nothing. Actually, uh, this, this process is called yeast autolysis. And mm. so if you hear somebody say autolytic character, you're thinking in your head bread pastry um bread dough doughy that spectrum of notes and flavors so when you are letting this wine rest and this process is breaking down so you mentioned does the wine start to degrade this actually is believed by a lot of winemakers to be an antioxidant property no kidding yeah so, so this, this is actually preserving this actually helps preserve the wine and this is which part would slow of slow down the aging process in general mm-hmm. which is supposed to be making more complex yeah profiles so this is why if you go to the top producers in champagne this is part of why a they're letting this autolysis process happen for so long to begin with and then a lot of them also will age their wines after the next step that we'll talk about here in a second for another couple of years at least. And we so did that way those flavors yeah. can develop. And we did talk about this in our uh in our wine methods episode when we were talking about how the longer and smaller the amount of oxygen that's being introduced to the wine, typically the more complex it's going to be if there's something in there for it to react to. So yeah. I did not know that yeast autolysis though was going to contribute to the rate at which that oxidation was going to be occurring Mm -hmm. because like we said there is still oxygen that gets in through that cork yeah but i didn't realize that there would actually be an antioxidant property to that in order to help increase that complexity Mm -hmm. that is fantastic yeah uh and again this method is considered kind of the top tier method for a reason oh uh real quick describe if i were to go into a wine house that was doing this how would i be seeing these positions uh like so because it's my understanding that they have a couple of different methods that they are going to be accomplishing aging this on the lees. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not sure if we use that term to to rest on the lees or to age on the lees. But lees are how, your spent yeast cells. Yeah. So how would how what would I be seeing if I were to walk into the area where this is happening? Um, I'm not super familiar with that because I do know it does vary. I normally have just seen them on their side because you want as much surface area mm-hmm. in contact with the rest of the wine as possible to expedite the process of the yeast breaking down. Mm. And also, um, you know, you want your cork to have the proper seal. And yeah. it's important to store. That's why we store wine bottles on their side in cellars. It helps with they the seal of the cork. Yeah, they have to stay wet so that they stay large. Yes. 
most of the time, like I said, I've seen them on their side. And then they'll be rotated either automatically or by hand. Yeah, so that gets into the next step that I'm going to is uh, riddling Mm. is what that process is called. So in the way that wine has been produced in the past under this method, and particularly champagne, before we had what are called gyro pallets now, which mechanize this whole process, someone had to go in every day and basically kind of swirl the bottle and put it at an increasingly downward angle Mm. over time. So I get the swirling of the bottle because it's kind of like if you pour hot milk into your cocoa powder, you might have the outside being exposed to it, but everything that's on the inside is not necessarily being exposed. So it's, it's uneven. It's partially that. It's primarily just to start kind of knocking the sediment loose so that way it will go into the neck of the bottle mm. easier. What this riddling process does is it prepares it for disgorgement, which we'll get to in a second. So it's not just about exposing the yeast. There's actually another function to this. Yeah, because you want all of this sediment to go to the neck of the bottle where the cork is. Oh, so that's why they would be increasing the angle so mm-hmm. that you're just slowly... Yeah, it, it's a mixture of your... And it's a very gentle swirl. You're not like really agitating this bottle. Remember, these are under immense pressure. So yeah. you're, you're trying you're trying not to have your corks fly out of the bottle while you're riddling them or else you're going to ruin, you know, a whole bottle of potentially really expensive wine, right? It's a very gentle process. You're relying a lot on gravity to help you out. And over the time, you get them to basically where they're vertical with the top of the bottle facing downward. So everything is in the neck of the bottle. Again, gyro pallets now basically mechanize this whole process. It's very um, uncommon to really find riddling now. The labor that goes into it, it can take weeks, whereas in a jar pallet, it can do it in a couple of days, if I remember correctly. Mm. So it it's kind of outdated, but that is the traditional way it was done. And some places to preserve that tradition still will do it. But that whole process is to prepare for disgorgement. So disgorgement is when you flash freeze the neck of the bottle typically in um liquid nitrogen mm. and what it does is it also freezes the deposit of sediment of, of yeast and whatever else might be in that bottle that has collected in the neck of the bottle from the riddling process and this is all mechanized now from my knowledge i don't really know of anybody that disgorges by hand at oh, this no, point there, there's still a couple of houses really that I know of that will do this i by did hand. not know that uh, well yeah. it's widely mechanized yeah across no, the and, and it's it's not for all of what they produce it's for like a fraction of a percent of what they produce yeah. you know they're they're super traditional stuff but yeah so only the neck is frozen and because you need the pressure inside of that bottle to essentially what you're doing is you pop the cork off and the pressure inside the bottle shoots the deposit out and that's how you get rid of it <laughs> that's <laughs> like the person that thought about that to begin with yeah. you have to be th- it's just like so how do we get the sentiment out well i have an idea yeah yeah that that's how you get rid of that yeast that's why you know you have a nice clear bottle of wine when oh you buy gosh. it in the store so after that the bottle is then topped off as you remember the popping of a bottle will spill some wine yeah you need to get your 750 in there actually fun little fact about champagne bottles in particular part of the reason why the foil comes down so long on those bottles is because before this step was added to the process oh no it was to hide how much of the wine had been lost (laughs) during the disgorgement well but they didn't really have the technology or they hadn't come up with this method at least at that time to um correct 
that. So now we do correct it. They keep it on for tradition purposes, but you can be reassured that if you remove that foil, it's going to be a full bottle. My bread and butter is is marketing tricks. <laughs> when it comes to this sort of stuff, I'm so surprised I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. No, uh, it, I mean, again, it's it's not really something we have to worry about in the modern day. It's a very, uh, you know, medieval, I guess, thing. But uh, it's topped off with something called the Liqueur d'Expedition. And that is a still wine that is, you know, kept behind by the producer and reintroduced back into the wine. It can be used for several purposes. If you're going for like a zero grams per liter thing or a very low grams per liter, you're not going to be adding sugar back into that liquor d'expedition to to put back into the bottle. Um, but sweetness is something that winemakers will correct with this. Because you have to balance out acidity and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Uh, also, for a lot of these really top producers who do have these extremely long ages on their bottles on the lees, they will add a young wine back into it to kind of give some of that young wine brightness back. And again, it's it's to increase the complexity. But uh, if your wine has kind of like only, you know, autolytic character or something, you might want to add in a bit of that fruit again to brighten it up and make it more refreshing. Also, something I forgot to mention uh, about all sparkling wines is uh, typically you want to have high acid grapes Yeah, for sparkling wine production. It just helps with the balance overall. The carbonation will be far too aggressive if you don't have some pretty high acid to also help balance that yeah. out and which this was all kind of developed as a as a result of where this stuff was being grown but typically the things that you're going to see in in champagne in particular is going to be you know chardonnay you're going to have pinot noir pinot meunier so and those are all very high acidity especially if you're in a cooler climate especially if you harvest them on a, on a little bit of the younger side you're not going to let them ripen all too much no this no. is not a late harvest uh type deal at all yeah Okay, so that's interesting. So we have the traditional methods. So we have our champagne, we have our cava, which is made primarily like that. What about the transfer method? So transfer method is essentially the same thing. It is a fermented in bottle second fermentation process, just like the traditional method. Everything is the same until you get to the riddling stage. So instead of this process of getting all the sediment deposit into the neck of the bottle, you're going to take all of your bottles, you're going to open all of them and you're going to empty them into a pressurized tank and this is all mechanized now and what you do is you then collect all of these in this pressurized tank you filter out the sediment instead of you know letting it happen with gravity and then you rebottle it after that you can still do the liquid expedition um, to correct as well i don't know how common that is in this method yeah, and I would imagine it would be more on a macro than a micro scale. So, yeah. So in the tank as opposed to the bottle itself. Mm-hmm. So there there are a couple things you gain from this method over the standard traditional method. A, because it's still being fermented in the bottle, you're not really sacrificing quality mm-hmm. for this, even though it is a cheaper option, which is another reason producers do it. It is a cheaper option for sparkling wine production while still having a high quality product. I would imagine it would also make it a much more consistent product across the board. Yes. So that is, that's actually exactly what I was going to say next is you have a consistent product. You don't have bottle variations from, you know, where it was stored in your warehouse versus not stuff like that. So it can help kind of correct any, um, 
irregularities that might have happened in the model or in certain areas of your warehouse. And that that's those are kind of the primary factors and why you would use that method. So a bit more consistency, mm-hmm. uh, maybe not as much of the rustic component of of bottle variation, but mm-hmm. also you you end up being able to just control a bit more since you are emptying everything out into the same vat. And you save money. And you save money, which is always good. So yes. we also have the tank method. Mm-hmm. So describe the tank method to me because it's this one is going to give you a little bit of a different profile in general. And if I'm not mistaken, there are also some drawbacks to it. This method is what pretty much all Prosecco will be made with. Actually, I think it it might be legally mandated, if I remember correctly, yeah. that it goes through tank method. Yeah, it has to. You won't. You will never find Prosecco that that is done in the traditional method. Or if there is, tell me about it because that would be very interesting to have the Galera grape. Yeah. In a traditional method, I'm not sure if it would work. I don't, well, so that's I was gonna say. This is a method that. I'm going to be really upfront. I have never really liked Prosecco, even before I really got into wine. Oof. Well, it was so funny because I could always taste a difference between champagne and Prosecco, let's say. Oh, yeah. And, but I could never figure out why until I learned all these methods. And I went, oh, it's literally just how the wine is produced. Yeah. So this method is used for grapes like Glera, which is a very fruit-forward grape. Yeah. This is used mainly for wines where you want to preserve the fruit character i know it's also used for like sauvignon blanc sparkling wines or just wines where autolytic characters don't fit the grape yeah so the reason why you aren't going to be getting those characters is the tank method is an initial fermentation in typically stainless steel tanks i don't really i don't think i've ever heard of anyone fermenting an oak for a tank method wine i feel like that would have the same problems that exactly. the autolysis would actually yeah get you, you're going to be getting unnecessary oxidation and typically for these grapes you re- you want as little oxygen as yeah. possible these, in the process. this is a young flavor this is mm-hmm. bright acidic yeah. fresh so and then it goes into a tank a pressurized tank and it undergoes a second fermentation in that tank and there is basically no autolysis that happens you can kind of get some if you have stirring paddles or something like that that will help the lees get kicked back up into the wine but again if you're making a tank method wine you probably don't want that so most producers will just let the yeast settle to the bottom let the fermentation happen maybe um, just kind of let it rest for a while but nothing near like what you would see with um, a traditional method or a transfer method wine so it's less so that it would be a drawback and more so that this is just fitted to a different profile yeah and i will say it it will produce a typically a lower alcohol and sweeter style of wine mm-hmm. um, it, it, again it sweeter kind of suits most of these grapes just in general prosecco is typically it's sweeter. Yeah. It's typically in your off dry and and above in terms of going upwards into sweetness scale. And we are going to be giving you guys a little bit of a scale because we know that when you see extra dry, extra brute, you know, brute, dry, all that stuff, there is some confusion. There are some historical reasons for that. We're, we're going to give you a quick guide to that at the end of the episode. Yeah. Um, but this would be that off 
off dry. There's a, a higher sugar content typically. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be a bit sweeter. And that probably accounts for one of the main reasons why it is, you know, selling twice as much as champagne other yeah. than the prohibitive expense. But yeah. Well, and you can make a lot more of this a lot quicker. Oh, yeah. And it has also, to be had quicker as well. Yeah. And uh, the, the bubbles are also different in this method. So mm-hmm. in your traditional method and your transfer method wines, you're typically going to find a lot finer of a bead, mm-hmm. which the bead is just another term for the, the bubble. So and we, the, and we haven't talked about this yet, but there is a variation between the actual size of the bubbles, yeah. um, the consistency, the amount of bubbles. So, so you do have those finer bubbles that are going to be in the traditional method, but then in the tank method. In the tank method, you're going to be getting bigger bubbles. The reason you have your finer bubbles in your traditional method is uh, kind of a combination of factors, but a lot of it comes down to it just has more time to dissolve. The carbon dioxide has more time to mm-hmm. dissolve into the actual wine solution. You don't have that in the tank method because typically, like I said, these wines are not aged for very long and they're pretty much like an immediate release for sale kind of thing. Yeah. You want to drink these wines young, whereas with champagne, you can lay them down for a while. You don't want to be laying down your Prosecco yeah, for I think it's most... like six to ten months is, is your... Yeah, it's not very long. Yeah. It's not longer than what most of your standard white wines would be undergoing anyway. Yeah. So you don't want to be aging these wines, really. They're not going to age particularly well for the most part. Some of the higher level, like DOCG Italian Proseccos, might benefit a little bit from some age, but not... See, I like Prosecco, so yeah. I, I enjoy it, but I... You know, you want to have it, it has its place. Yeah, you want it. Yeah. You want it to be young. I love a little afternoon spritz. You know, that's that's going to be a fun thing for you. But also great for mimosas. Also fantastic for mimosas. Yeah. And also one of my favorite things to do is actually to do a glass of prosecco with a hibiscus flower Ooh, at nice. the center. No, it's lovely. It rounds it out a lot. I've also heard people putting Saint Germain, like a little bit of Saint Germain, in the prosecco. That I've, I want to try that actually because I really enjoy Saint Germain. Anyway, all that to say, bigger beads, shorter aging time, overall, no bottle fermentation at all. It it just goes directly into the bottle for sale. And the profile is just going to be those bright, acidic, fresh flavors. You're not going to get those toasty notes that you get from the traditional method where it's aged on the leaves. Yes. Yep. Now we have the Osti method, which a lot of you might recognize this as being the last word in Moscato di Asti. Mm-hmm. So if you enjoy Moscato, that also has some bubbles in it. Yep. Uh, this is going to be the method that produced it for you. Uh, if you don't know where Asti is, it is in Italy. It's in the Piemonte region, which is in the northern part of Italy. Fun fact, this is only one fermentation. So whereas we've had a second fermentation in all of our wine production up to this point, this is only one. And This fermentation happens in a sealable pressurized tank. And Mm. what they do is partway through the only one fermentation that happens in this method, they seal off the tank and they let the carbon dioxide build up from there. Oh, so just the initial fermentation is actually providing the carbon dioxide Mm -hmm. for the the carbonation. So Osti method tends to produce what would probably be more commonly known as frizzante. Yeah. Consistency, light, Mm -hmm. effervescence. Yes, effervescence is a great word. It's not anywhere near what your champagnes or even your tank method wines normally are going to be. I think they only get up to maybe like four atmospheres, if I remember correctly, Mm -hmm. uh, at most. Most of your champagnes are at like six, pushing six, which is – it might not sound like a lot, but this scale is kind of like Fahrenheit versus Celsius. There's a lot more in one atmosphere than there is in one PSI. Yeah. Just know that there's a lot more PSI between 
four and six than you might think. So this is, you know, again, very young style, meant to be drunk young, meant to be, you know, very easy drinking. Much sweeter sweet. profile. Yes. Yeah. So, this was actually one of the most popular things that I would sell while mm-hmm. I was selling wine and beer. Yeah. And part of the reason for the sweetness is this fermentation is actually stopped not because the fermentation has fully finished from the yeast consuming all the sugar. It's cooled to mm. preserve natural sugar in the wine. Yeah, they want this to be sweeter. Yes. Uh, so it's actually artificially stopped by cooling down the wine. Then it's filtered and bottled for sale. And then it lands on your shelf. And then it's bought in bulk. <laughs> yep. Early stopping the fermentation will also put out even lower alcohol than most other, uh, you know. Do you enjoy Moscato Diasti? No. <laughs> no. I, I, well, you, you know. I, I have a few that I really love. I, I try to be fair to Moscato. I know it gets a bad rap. It is also like the oldest wine. Yeah. If it, I do not mind Moscato Diasti. I just, there there is something to be said about raising your blood sugar when you're drinking that is <laughs> is not great, but... I'm not going to knock it if it's yeah. well made. So like my, I, I do have a favorite, um, Rinaldi's bug juice. That does not sound oh, particularly no, it's, appealing. It's a great, it's a great little story. So basically like Rinaldi Vineyards was known for being like really amazing, prestigious dry wines. And then one of the people that ended up being born to that family decided that she wanted to make sweeter wines. And her family basically was like, you're never going to amount to anything if you do this. And then. Oh. And so the great family, the insult that she got from her grandpa was it's bug juice. (laughs) And she ended up creating something that became very successful. It actually is delightfully complex. You get elements of many different floral elements, I should say, inside of this wine, including honeysuckle. um, I would even say orange blossom. Mm hmm. But she named it after the insult just to to spite the the fact that she actually had something that was complex and that mm-hmm. was compelling inside of a sweeter wine. I, I imagine that would probably just be a in large part due to they have really good vineyard sites where these mm-hmm. grapes can reach full physiological ripeness. Oh, yeah. And I think the reason why Moscato de Asti does get a bad rap is because people see it as a junk wine. Mm-hmm. So they're not investing the same type of time that they would in a higher quality wine in the actual production of the grapes. So when you see what can happen when somebody does pay attention, still not my preferred style. I do prefer dry wines. Yeah. But when you see the quality of what can be produced, it's just like, okay, so yeah. I see why a person might enjoy this. Yeah, I mean, I, I've had, I've heard there are very good Moscato Dostis. It's just... um, I know what I'm getting you next time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting well, you that bug juice. You know, you've probably picked up, if you're a listener, that... uh. I I just don't really do sweet wine overall. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't even like soda. So, uh, yeah. I mean, so it, for me it, it's a combination of there is a lot of very the thing with Osti and it does get a bad rap for this is it's such a high pro- volume production region in general. Mm-hmm. You're just getting so much wine that is being bottled for sale because this method is quick and easy and cheap. Exactly. And you can use cheap grapes in it and still get something that Americans will drink because we really like sweet wine. Yes, we do. (laughs) We love our sweet wine. uh, But yeah, so, you know, let's move on, though. I don't want to keep ripping on Osti. Listen, if you like this wine, more power to you. And it's not like I hate it. It's just not really what I go I'm going to enjoy getting your critique of the bug juice. I might need to bring that on the next episode just to see how you react to it. Again... 
I know that sweet isn't either of our things, but I'm, I think that you would appreciate it. So we have that. What what other sort of methods might we be looking at as far as producing these sparkling wines that maybe isn't as popular today? Well, if you want to get into not popular but still very prevalent forced carbonation, I think is uh, the one I would say really oh, fits yeah. that description. Where you just basically have a tank of carbon dioxide that you just pump into it. Yeah, it's basically just a soda stream, but with wine. <laughs> like, That's thoroughly unromantic. <laughs> it's not a very romantic process. No. You know, it's uh, it, it's, it's dead. <laughs> well, it, it's used in a lot of places where you have, very similar to why you would use the tank method, you have grapes that don't do well with any sort of autolytic character, but you still want to make a sparkling wine, so you carbonate it. The thing is, I can pick out forced carbonation wines really easy. And once you taste enough sparkling wines, it becomes very prevalent because it, uh, you know, even tank method, even though it's kind of considered to be a cheaper method, it, it still produces, it can still produce very high quality wines. Don't yeah. get me wrong. Um, but it's considered to be a cheaper method. And sometimes people will say that the bubbles aren't as well integrated. Forced carbonation, even less so. The yeah. bubbles almost feel disjointed i guess at least in ones i've had it just it, it's, it's like not it shouldn't consistent be. no and it, it feels like this shouldn't be like this this shouldn't have this this consistency this something's off here yeah whereas with the one i forget who said it but they're like yeah when you're drinking champagne you're tasting the stars when when you're drinking forest carbonation stuff sometimes it tastes it's like having a, a pile of pebbles yeah in I, your mouth and it's it, not great it's it's strange and it can also affect like other flavors in the wine i don't know if that's just the perception of the carbon dioxide but i've had ones that like i thought something was just flawed in the wine but it turns out it was just the carbonation yeah i think it's the method that the the carbon dioxide is produced because it's not being produced by a yeast reaction, it actually ends up having a basically different trace elements that affect the, you could even say the smell of the carbon dioxide, and yeah. that can actually contribute to to what it is that you're you're experiencing in that. Yeah. The other kind of, until very recently, long forgotten, not forgotten, France actually uh, has their own term for this method, method ancestral. Uh, but that is your pet nats. That is so much more romantic. <laughs> uh, well, th th but it was the ancestral method. I, obviously, that's a direct translation. This was what champagne was doing before champagne started doing traditional method wines. Mm. The uh, you might also see a petillant. I don't know if that's petillant or petillant. I don't know if French does the double L things like Spanish does. Uh, I believe it does. Okay, so petillant naturel is another term, but pe most people say pet nat. At least in the United States, we say it. You might have heard I'm about comfortable this. comfortable with that. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's it's kind of catchy, actually. Um, you might have heard of this method. It's become very trendy. Oh, really? Who Do you know of anybody that's been doing it in the U.S.? Well, I'm, actually, I know a Virginia producer. No kidding. Has, yeah, uh, Early Mountain has started doing a pet nat. And it's actually really good. I, I tried it for a um, course that I did for, was it? It was either for sparkling wines as a whole, or it was for skin contact wines. I don't remember which one it was. Do you was. remember what types of grapes were in it? It was an M grape. It might have been Muscat. I don't mm. know off the top of my head. I would need to look it up. It might have been Muscat or Muscadel. So what distinguishes the traditional ancestral method, I should say? So this one is another single fermentation sparkling wine. This one, and it, it actually is kind of similar to the Osti method now that I'm like reading my notes and thinking about it, but the wine starts in a fermentation vessel 
for this wine, typically it's going to be, again, a stainless steel. Obviously, traditionally, it would have been fermented in a barrel because that's what they had at the time, at least to my understanding of when this was being done. But it starts in a fermentation vessel. You cool it down mm. and you put a pause on the fermentation. Then you put what's in that fermentation vessel into bottle. And so it. Okay. So I can see where that actually comes into the historical elements of it because a lot of that was just being done by the natural by nature, climate. Yes. <laughs> at the time. Yeah. Or well, Dom you know, per- Monk Dom Perignon mm-hmm. and, and his struggles trying to make a still wine. <laughs> yeah. But well, they didn't know what yeast were. They didn't have, you know, micro. What's the thing? A microscope. Microscope. Oh my gosh. Ooh boy. Okay. I graduated high school. W sets. <laughs> they didn't have microscopes. They couldn't, you know, identify these things. So th- these things just kind of happened. But now we know, obviously, we can do this with much less chance of your bottles exploding when spring comes around. Which was a problem, which is one of the reasons why it inflated the prices when mm-hmm. they were shipping this stuff yeah. in the first place. So it continues in the bottle. The fermentation continues because those yeast were not killed off. They were just cooled down. They were just they made go, to go dormant. They go dormant. They don't die. Yeah. So it's continuing and then it just finishes that fermentation in the bottle. There is no disgorgement for this style of wine. So with most pet gnats, yes, you will have sediment in your wine. And that, that's okay. It's not dangerous or anything. And in general, this is going to be a sweeter style of wine. Um, not at least I've only had the early mountain pet gnat. I do know in more uh, metro areas. It, again, it's very trendy. So I can't really speak. For other ones that I've had, I do know they tend to be sweeter in style. But the Pet Knot from Early Mountain, it was it was definitely sweet. Um, I would say probably to off dry to medium sweet camp. It, it's not a sweetness that I, I didn't like. It was very well balanced. You do have it, it is more kind of that frizzante, more effervescent, less aggressive, persistent, uh, sparkling effect in the wine. This is just the Pet Knot style. Um, you know, lower alcohol as well but very easy to drink kind of like your moscato dosties and your proseccos typically not aged really at all Mm. uh it just kind of sent out to sale because you do want to drink these wines typically when they're young because again they just don't really have the character normally to have any sort of ageability on them so we've mentioned now and we've been throwing around the terms dry sweet but that's not exactly a one-to-one ratio Correct. when you walked into a store and you're trying to select something. So yeah. one of the things that we love to do is make sure that when you're walking in to purchase your wine, you have some confidence in that. So what is the scale? If I were to say uh, the driest wine, so the lowest amount of sugar to the highest amount of sugar that you're going to find in sparkling wines, what are we what are we looking at? So you're going to start at your dry of dries and with Brut Nature. Which is zero dosage up till legally, I want to say it's only like three grams per liter or something like that. Mm. So you're getting like no sweetness. These wines are bone dry. They're typically, you know, the acid, because it's not being balanced out by any sweetness, is very racy in these wines. Mm. It, admittedly, my favorite style of sparkling wines probably shocking nobody listening to this if you've paid attention to what I said I liked in past episodes. Yeah. Uh, so from there, going upward in sweetness, you get to extra brute next. Then you get to just brute, extra sec, sec or secco, demi sec, and then dew, which dew is like super sweet. Yeah. 
sec is already pretty sweet. Like if I see sec on a wine, I kind of know I'm probably not going to like it. And then if we were to say dry and extra dry, that would actually fit in right at that kind of like sec and extra sec level. It's, you know, it's English, but mm-hmm. it's brute is going to be drier than dry. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and that's because of some marketing stuff that happened after the technology for because it basically turned into an arms race of who could make the driest wine. And by the time somebody said dry and then extra dry, somebody else came up with another method. Her name was Miss Palmeray. And it was drier than that. So they had to make a new term for it and they yeah. weren't going to relabel everything. So they just decided to make it brute. So that's why you have that distinguishment. If you're buying, get the dry. If you know that your crowd is wanting more sugar, get the brute. If you know that they want less. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the basic, uh, the basic takeaway from that. Or if they're like me, just don't have any sugar in the wine at all. So <laughs> yeah, just yeah. get, get him the brute nature. Um, there were a couple of other terms, though, that I wanted to just kind of make you aware of. Yeah, we definitely will... want to know how to navigate buying these different types. Mm-hmm. So uh, most of these do just kind of apply mainly to champagne, and then other regions might copy these terms. But, you know, champagne, again, kind of was the inception of sparkling wine as a whole. So it's obviously influenced the, that whole side of the industry. In champagne, as I mentioned earlier... A lot of these houses keep wines back and blend them together to create a consistent house style. So these are non-vintage wines in general. That's why you don't see a year on most champagnes. Mm -hmm. If champagne does declare a vintage, then it is a vintage champagne. It's kind of like port. If you're familiar with how port works in certain years, they will declare a vintage. That is when you had like the perfect growing environment. You know this wine can stand on its own. So you're declaring a vintage, and this is typically going to be a very expensive style of wine. This is typically like the top of what your house is producing outside of your maybe prestige cuvee. So you would have like your Dom Perignon, Mm -hmm. and you're you're drinking Dom Perignon. This is something that has been blended between several different years in order to achieve a specific profile that they believe is up to the quality of a Dom Perignon champagne, as opposed to if they said this is the 2007 they did not need to do blending. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were that is able all grapes from that year. Which the 2007 is actually quite lovely. Oh, you actually tried one? I did. Oh, I tried yeah. several Dom Perignons, and the 2007 was particularly good. Yeah. I do not like the regular Dom Perignon, though, I must admit. Oh, I guess we'll have to talk about that more in the future. Yeah, yeah. If I mean, if I had to give you a list of, of like my top three, it would probably be uh, Mai, which there's a cool little story about that, uh, about a, a village that was destroyed by Nazis, and then the whole village ended up buying the winery in order to save it. Then Gabis Gabiard, that's another really amazing one. And then another one, I don't know why I always forget this name, but it starts with salmon, and it is a a rosé uh, style champagne, which is already kind of rare, and it's just gorgeous. Hmm, it okay. is so gorgeous. So some other terms that you might need to know or want to know is also, I just actually said this one, Prestige Cuvée. Prestige Cuvée doesn't have a legal definition. It's just what producers will put on their wine to be like, this is what we think is our top quality, the maximum amount of what we can make Oh wow! for you. So, so it, it's a personal declaration yeah, of it, quality. And, you know, it, it's not like these, especially the top producers, are going to be slapping this label on just anything. This really is like what they think they can make money off of. So typically, yes, there is a 
quality indication in that term. But again, just remember, it's not legally defined. And I would highly recommend actually, I would recommend this with all champagnes because every champagne house kind of like Bordeaux likes to have its own little twist on the style. I would go and look into what their house style is and what their philosophy is before buying particularly a prestige cuvee because you are probably going to buy or you're probably going to spend a little bit more on that uh, than you are on their base wine to begin with so definitely know what you're buying know that it is probably going to be a higher quality just maybe not the higher kind of quality that you are looking for yeah but again perfectly good term for uh bottle use then we have uh, you mentioned blanc de blanc earlier Mm -hmm. and you, you said that that is a white of whites so that just means that white grapes were used to make this wine. You also have Blanc de Noir. Which is my favorite. Yes. Uh, so Blanc de Noir, if you didn't know, you can make white wine out of a black grape. Pinot Noir, obviously, is the champagne. And Pinot Meunier are the black grapes of champagne. You can make white wine with them. Uh, you just have to be very careful about how you press them. Make sure as little, 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 little skin contact happens yeah. as possible. But it is possible to have a white wine from a red or black grape. Yeah, and you're going to have differences in the the uh, profiles of each one of these. You can also, like one of my favorite things is I, I like the Pinot Noir that comes from Champagne, but I also am a huge fan of Cremant de Bergeron, which is traditional style sparkling wine that is produced from grapes that are grown in Burgundy, France. Which is also going to be Pinot Noir. Which is also going to be, yeah, Pinot Noir. So... These are going to have more bright cherry flavors. You're going to get a lot more of that kind of like delicate but darker fruits as opposed to the Blanc de Blanc, which is primarily Chardonnay, Mm -hmm. which is going to be giving you those kind of crisper apple uh, notes. You're going to be getting sometimes tangerine and depending on how long it's aged on the lees, blue cheese. I actually do want to uh, go into Cremant a little bit because Mm -hmm. you also have Cremant de Loire. If you see these terms on a bottle, it's only really used in France because it is a you know legally defined term in that country. Uh, it's traditional method. It's yeah. the same method they use in Champagne. Uh, Different so regions, it, though. Yes. They just can't use the name Champagne. So if you don't see on the bottle of a Cremant de Loire or Cremant de Bergeron, you know, traditional method or method traditionnel, just know that that is what is in that bottle. Yeah. Which is actually interesting that you mentioned that because now, so Prosecco used to be the name of the grape itself, but different places around the world started actually producing what they were calling Proseccos from the same grape. So mm-hmm. that's actually why now it's called the Glera grape. Yeah. And the region of Prosecco is now something that they're trying to kind of give, not, uh, well, they're probably trying to give it the same prestige as Champagne. Well, Prosecco has its own DOCG now, if I remember correctly. So if you know the Italian system. So there's DOC, then there's DOCG, and I believe there's one more, but I can't remember what it is. Um, Well, you have your Classico definition as Mm -hmm. well. Classico means, you know, the region of Chianti today is not the region of Chianti that started producing wine. Mm -hmm. Classico means you are in that historic region that was kind of the first delineated region that started producing this wine so i don't know if that's what you're thinking of um i feel like i am missing a term for italy but anyway the prosecco region does now have its own docg so they do have the top of the top you know strict qualification testing uh i actually think docg wines also have to be blind tested by a panel if i remember Mm -hmm. correctly to approve the quality kind of like the cru bourgeois of bordeaux Mm -hmm. 
but I don't think they always had one, if I remember correctly. So that kind of goes to show that. Oh no! Italy... Everybody's growing into a more, uh, I would say, strict, but it's kind of like a regulated thing, so that just the international market knows what to expect when they're buying from any particular region. It's a lot of it is marketing, <laughs> as yeah. with as with most things in the wine world. But that that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. No, because marketing on its base level is communication of goods. Mm-hmm. So. You know, you can have a lot of dodgy marketing things that end up happening, a lot of practices that end up being done purely in order to inflate sales. But at the end of the day and at its core, what marketing should be is a communication of the values of whatever it is that you're producing. And hopefully that's even a way of, you know, winemakers being able to communicate to one another about what it is that they're creating, Mm -hmm. uh, which is now what is happening in Prosecco um, and also what's happening in Spain. Yeah. Uh, Well, it's happening all over the world, really. I I think people have gotten so over your high volume wine brands. Yeah. And people are now more and more. There's still a lot of um, corporate influence, particularly in the United States and California, which uh, we can get into that probably in a whole episode. Yeah. At least within our circles a lot of people it's kind of like like we were talking about craft beer in the last episode and people wanting to go back to uniqueness and novelty and finding kind of a voice for a region Mm -hmm. Um, i think a lot of people are going in that direction looking for smaller producers looking for people who are passionate yeah about it and, and producing really good wines with what they can now we haven't talked a lot about spain But I did want to briefly go into this particular wine, which has thoroughly distracted me during this entire episode. Are you asking for some? No, look at my glass. It's empty. Well, I mean, that sounds like a personal problem. That should be an automatic invitation. Oh, I see. No, it is an automatic invitation. (laughs) Wine is best shared. I I thought you were passionate about hosting, Michael. I am (laughs) passionate about hosting. Actually, I love sharing this sort of stuff. This in particular, though, Gabe bought simply because I hadn't tried it yet. So thank you very much, Gabe. This has been a delightful experience. Very light in color, very typical of the traditional method of champagne, articulated bubbles. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on this? I immediately got notes of apple, particularly like a uh, not quite a baked apple, but getting there. I definitely agree on the apple. I would put in very ripe pears as well. Mm-hmm. The citrus also really jumps out at me. I'm getting more into Meyer lemon than, you know, lemons from the grocery store per se, where it's starting to cross over into orange, but not not quite yeah. that. I, I um, wanted to say tangerine, but that's not where it's at. I um yeah, I, I would kind of keep it because in Meyer lemon. That- you could maybe say a little bit of lime too. Um, Almost like a lemon balm mm-hmm. more than... Yeah. So, you know, this wine doesn't have a ton of autolytic character, but it is there. There is definitely kind of this bready, almost uh, like phyllo dough yeah. kind of taste to it, where it's just very light and pleasant, crispy, bready. say very subtly sour as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's also a little bit of florality. Um, y- you're probably looking just kind of at a, a general blossom, white blossom character. Maybe a little bit of orange blossom. Actually, you know, orange blossom might. That sounds about right. Yeah, might be a really solid one for this wine. And also the minerality. And this is 
Hymen, I would totally have oysters with this. Yeah. So, you know, I really like highly mineral driven wines. Champagne is known for that. I mean, it's literally in the soil. They got their soil from, you know, seabeds, ancient seabeds. Yeah. Uh, but kava can have that same minerality. It, it, obviously, it depends on where it's grown and where it's coming from. But this one definitely has a really nice, almost um, almost kind of flinty mm-hmm. character where it's like that slightly smoky thing, but not not like uh, not like you're standing next to a bonfire or anything, but just kind of like that whiff of maybe someone just like lit a match in another room or something. Yeah, I would say it's like flint and graphite. Yeah, that yeah, perfect. Yeah. I mean, maybe even a little bit of oyster shell, honestly, because there's a little bit of a... And I get this, honestly, with a lot of Spanish white wines. I don't know if it's the climate or what, but a little bit of salinity. um, Not like Mm -hmm. sherry salinity, not like that iodine character, but just almost kind of like a a sea breeze, kind of gently wafting through. A gently wafting sea breeze, he says as he sips his wine. (laughs) We're not bougie here. (laughs) I make wine content for the normal people. For the normal people. <laughs> now enjoy my gently wafting series. <laughs> no, it, you know. It, no, it, I completely get what you're saying there. There is this kind of like subtle salinity that kind of clings to the minerality. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not overwhelming or anything, but it is prevalent. And I will also say this wine. It, well, A, so the persistence of the bubbles is really nice. Mm-hmm. This is only my second glass for the entire episode and by the time i finished my first one however long it was into recording it still had some bubbles going yeah this this has a really nice persistence it obviously was very well integrated and even when it's in your mouth you know that that sparkling sensation doesn't go away immediately yeah. like a frizzante a moscato d'asti would and the the bubbles pretty fine um not the finest i've ever seen but I've taken classes where we've done an entire night dedicated to tasting sparkling wine. So yeah, like I've seen some very fine beads, but on the spectrum, I would call these fine beads definitely mouth filling. You know, when, when you drink it, it, it flares up a little bit, yeah, but it's not is there. It's not, I would not necessarily call this aggressive for a sparkling. I mean, these wine. things are probably, yeah, they're probably less than a millimeter in diameter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, this is a lovely wine. There are a lot of different champagnes. So champagne, um, sparkling wines in general, are are my favorite wines. Back when I was selling, I did receive the honorary title of Captain Bubbles. Um, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, no, we're we were talking about our our um, our logo earlier today, and we're kind of like it's like it's like uh, the Goth Gatsby, you know? It's <laughs> it's nice, and then and then in the meantime of it being kind of like a darker feel to it more of like a speakeasy vibe i'm just here like here comes captain bubbles and i'm captain bubbles <laughs> maybe Hello. it's one of those like ironic names like you know pirates used to kind of have these ironic names like that oh yeah 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 or or what was that thing in key and peel where they're like the the more cute that a guy's name is the more you know not to mess with him. <laughs> yeah yeah i wish that was the case with well no i don't wish that was the case with me but yeah, so there are a lot of different things to explore. There's there's sparkling from pretty much every single uh, continent at this point. Mm-hmm. The ones that I, again, that I particularly enjoy, if you are looking to try a method traditional, but you're not wanting to spend the money on champagne or Cremant de Bergeron, 
I would recommend getting a Kava. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're typically going to be between the uh, 10 and $15 amounts, and it's going to yeah. be fantastic. This one, and again, this is the Segura Viudas uh, Reserva. Reserva, yeah. Brute. This is $21, if I remember correctly. You know, a little bit more expensive than you're going to find in most of your grocery stores, at least. I would say if you're if you're going to be drinking this quality from champagne, you'd probably be paying double. At the least, yeah. yeah. I mean, because champagne, you're, it's the starting price is around like 40. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 30 for like your very bare. Your bare bones. Bare bones, stuff. yeah, yeah. And then Cremant Bergeron the you can get for around 20, and it's it's mm-hmm. really good. Yeah, and Cremant de Loire. Anyways, uh, so we're going to be talking in our next episode about kind of how these different styles ended up coming about. We're going to be talking about the monk Dom Perignon and his struggles trying to create a still wine and how that ended up being a lovely trip down the steps headfirst into a style that we all love, as well as the scientific advancements that end up going. We're going to be mentioning Veuve Clicquot, which for those of you who don't know, it translates to the Widow Clicquot, as well as Pomeray, and then how these things were kind of popularized, how they were promoted, and how it ended up becoming the profile that we see today. So we look forward to hearing from you guys. If you guys have any questions, please follow us on Twitter and on Instagram if you would. And shoot us a DM if you have any questions or if there's any topics that you think that you would love us to get into. We love getting prompts. We can talk about wine all day. I really, you know, we're we're a wine and spirits podcast. I, I have been itching to talk about sake, man. Oh my gosh. You it's upset it's actually upsetting. So I actually worked in Japan and this man knows more about sake than I do and it's <laughs> and I've, upsetting. I've tried a lot more than he has. He as has well. tried so many. I've had more American sakes than I have had anything else and it is upsetting to me. So we need to do some sake episodes. Well, I want to I know this is very uh egotistical of me, but sake sales have been dropping if you didn't know or if you the listener did not know. Because Japan wants wine and whiskey now, and they're producing a lot of whiskey, and they're starting to produce wine. And they make really good whiskey. They make really good whiskey. Uh, Nikia is a great whiskey. If you have not tried it, keep an eye out for it. But yeah, no, sake sales have been down within the country. People just aren't really drinking it as much, and so they actually really? are relying a lot at exporting right now. And I kind of I want to act as the savior of sake, I guess. <laughs> because, because No, because sake, I think people kind of think it's this like, very um clean almost vodka like no flavor kind of thing when you get into good sake you get explosive fruit flavors that are just like so good and this nice cereal flavor i could go on for days about sake all right so uh we love you guys we look forward to hearing with you cheers cheers